This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I love this segment, warning signs. Now, wouldn't mm-hmm. that be great if we all heeded warning signs when we, you know, first of all, to be aware of them. Yeah. But there are a bunch, and I, lo- I think this is a really good segment, uh, warning signs of a debt problem that shouldn't be ignored. So as I mentioned, I'm talking to Blair, who's licensed insolvency trustee and, and vice president at Sands & Associates, talks to people every day who are looking for solutions to better manage their debts. And you've got four warning signs that Mm -hmm. you say are clear indications that you've got a debt problem. Yeah, exactly, Elaine. So I'm really happy to talk about this segment today because there's two types of debt problems. There are some that can just arise overnight. You didn't see them coming. Sure. Um, You know, sometimes that's, you know, a divorce, for example. You might not have seen that coming, just happens. You know, a big balance owing to CRA, maybe something you had no idea was coming. You get the assessment, that's that. Or the other things like an illness mm -hmm. or, you know, sudden family emergency, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, a lot of those things, you know, typically what you work about in life doesn't happen. The things you don't worry about are what really impact you. So there are some debt problems that are sudden and you don't see them coming. But my experience is that the vast majority of debt problems, a lot of them tend to start as a slow build. So there are some warning signs. There are some indications that, hey, maybe things aren't going completely according to plan. Um, But if you ignore them, if you have, you know, some of my clients say, well, I just buried my head in the sand for a period of time, you know, you can miss them. And then suddenly when you pop up, it's not a warning sign anymore. It's this ringing alarm bell and your your house is on fire at that point. Yeah, got it. Got it. Okay, so let's go through um, the four of them. What's the first one? Yeah, so the first one is just the idea of kind of what I don't know can't hurt me, and that, that's wrong. So <laughs> the idea is, you know, if you're avoiding your account balances, your credit account balances, um, that's a big warning sign that potentially you've got a debt problem coming. So how this tends to manifest or show itself is, you know, do you have unopened bills? Is there a stack of mail at home? You just don't want to open it, whether it's collection agency mail or, you know, even emails, you know what it's going to say, or you think you know what it's going to say, so you just kind kind of avoid it because it's bad news. Right, that whole denial thing that people, uh, and I think it's human nature, just that's their default. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you think if I'm not looking at it, it's not getting any worse. Well, that's the opposite of what happens with money problems because exactly. typically they don't get better. They get worse over time because the interest is working against you. Yeah. And if you're not opening your mail all the time, you might not even know if things have escalated. If you're being sued, if they're starting to garnish your wages, um, even if your bank has, you know, just taken a payment out of your account because you've missed one, if you're not opening your notices, you're not going to know that stuff. What are the other areas that we sort of ignore or delay looking at? Taxes are a big one. Um, and I know as soon as I say that word, some people have a visceral, physical reaction. Oh my God, my taxes, I haven't filed in a number of years. Uh, you're not alone, but um, it's really not a successful strategy for avoiding financial difficulties, not filing your taxes. You know, Even if you know that you owe CRA money, it's always better to file. Mm-hmm. Um, CRA does take extreme collection measures once you've got a balance owing, but they'll take even more extreme measures to compel you to file your taxes, including potentially calling for your arrest. Now, I've never seen someone thrown in jail for not filing taxes, but but I have seen a lot of people threatened that our next step is we will be throwing you in jail unless you get these tax returns filed. Which so, would be awful. Yeah. So typically, um, you know, 
try to file your taxes every year, even if you owe money, you're not solving anything by avoiding a tax filing. Now, not talking to people who you owe money to, who your debtors, that's, I know some people think that that's a good idea. It can be, but this is just the whole idea. It's a warning sign. So typically, you know, you talk to your creditors if you knew the situation was okay. And oh yeah, I just missed this payment this month. I'm going to catch it up next month. That's a phone call you're fine to have. But if you find that you're screening every single phone call, every single text message from your creditors, because you know it's something that you won't have a good answer to, to, to say, you know, they want a payment and you can't make it. Um, that's another warning sign to consider all following under avoidance or falling under avoidance. You know, the last one under this bucket as well, Elaine, is just the idea of not sharing your financial situation with those people that are closest with you, with your family, with your significant other, with your spouse, for example. Uh, if you're keeping things to yourself, not talking about your financial difficulties, that's a warning sign um, that there could be some financial challenges coming your way. Okay, so what's the next sort of big warning sign that has a whole bunch of other little pieces to it? Yeah, the, the second one is is what we just call adding to your debt. So it's the whole idea of how do you get yourself out of a hole? Well, the first thing you do is you stop digging. And that can be so tough to do when you find yourself in debt. But what you need to do um, is to really find out, am I adding to my debt every month? And if you are, well, that's a big warning sign that things aren't moving in the right direction. So, you know, a couple ways that this can show itself, you know, one is are you relying on credit to bridge the gap between your cost of living and your income? Is every month, you know, there's more month left over than there is money. And then it's a credit card that comes out and basically saves the day and and puts the balance on. If you're doing that regularly, obviously your balances are going to go up every month. Right. What about your, I know that we, we get inundated with the ads for the payday loan people. Mm-hmm. That can't be good. That can't be good. That's exactly, that's probably <laughs> the nicest way we can say that, is that it can't be good. Uh, what we find is, you know, if you needed a payday loan for one discreet, you know, uh, one time you knew it was going to get paid back right away, okay, that's what they can be great for. But our challenge is that it's a borrowing cycle that often starts. You get the one payday loan, and then when it comes time to pay that one back, you don't have the funds to pay it back. So you take out a second one to pay off the first, and so on and so forth. So be very worried if you're taking that first payday loan, if you don't have a plan to pay it back right away, you could fall into that cycle, that trap even, of having multiple payday loans at once. Or paying for that using another thing that just accumulates more debt, too. Well, that's exactly it. So that's a, another kind of sub-point to this warning sign, Elaine, is using credit to pay credit. So just shuffling money from one card to another, you know, trying to make a minimum on one with credit cards from another, um, you're just postponing the inevitable day when you have to face your debts head on. And if you're thinking about a consolidation loan, thinking, okay, well, if I just had one thing to pay this all off, that might be the answer. That's considered a warning sign too. It can be. Um, now, most of the time, people think a consolidation loan is going to be a savior. Um, the challenge is a lot of people will try to get a consolidation loan, but they can't qualify because they've already got a ton of debt. They don't have a whole lot of assets or their income isn't sufficiently high. So, you know, quite often a consolidation loan, the fact that you're seeking one out means that there's a bit of a warning sign with what's going on at home. Um, and it's kind of the, the, the issue that it's often a solution that doesn't solve a problem. You're not able to get the consolidation loan. So people get a little bit more more depressed um, at the end of it that they haven't moved forward. So I know that you've got a ton of experience in this. Does it make sense, uh, or if someone's able to make payments towards uh, your debt, that it that can sometimes throw them off to seeing how serious the situation actually is? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's the whole, this fallacy of, you know, minimum payments, the fallacy being that it's actually getting you somewhere, you know, doing something is, is not the same as doing anything. So, you know, when you're paying your minimum payment each month, oftentimes I sit down with clients and we look at, okay, you paid $200, $190 of that just evaporated. That was your interest charge, your finance charges, you know, everything's going to reoccur next month. So sometimes people do get that really false sense of, um, of achievement or sense of accomplishment or sense that things are okay, because all I'm doing is paying my minimums each month. And that's just not the designed to get you out of debt. Right. And do the credit card people actually tell you how long it's going to take you to pay off your debt? They do, and bless their heart for doing so, um, because it's a disclosure. (laughs) Now it's, you know, and sometimes it's on the front page, sometimes it's on the last page, big or small font, but it is there in every card across Canada. It says, you know, if you only make this minimum payment, um, here's how long it's going to take you to get out of debt. Um, And the numbers just get scary really quickly. So, you know, sometimes $6,000 can be upwards of 40 years, 40 40 years to pay off um, if you're just making minimum payments. Right. Right. This I thought this was pretty interesting um, that the, the statistics you had from 2018 about people who make a consumer proposal or filed a personal bankruptcy uh, around that idea of making minimum payments. Mm-hmm. So that was actually really interesting to us um, in that a lot of people saw that as their own warning sign. Um, they said, you know, that was their indicator that they knew they had a debt problem and that all, they knew all they could do was pay the minimums and that wasn't getting them, you know, far enough to pay the debts off. So the fact that that was close to 60% of our most recent survey of our clients um, leads us to believe that, yeah, people are getting a little bit more up to speed saying that minimum payments are designed to keep you in debt, not get you out of debt. Um, but what's kind of perverse to this is that it actually preserves a good credit rating. So when you make your minimum payments every month, um, you know, as long as you're not going delinquent on other accounts, typically your credit rating is going to be okay because, you know, you're giving a positive story. There was a minimum obligation. You paid that minimum obligation, even if that's year two of, you know, 38 more to go to pay off this debt, um, but your credit rating might look fine. Right. It's uh, crazy. It's, that, that always confounds me when you talk about that. I just think, oh, that's just such, that just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I know it makes logical sense, but, you know, in terms of a good good thing to use as your barometer, mm-hmm. not good. Um, and, and with all of these cases, we talk about the emotional impact that yeah. this can have. If you're thinking about A, B, C, and D all the time, that's stressful. Yeah, it's, you know, there's no one that walks into my door, you know, they have to walk out happy-go-lucky, very pleased, uh, but there's no one that walks in just very nonchalant about their debt. You can see it written all over their face, uh, all over the way they carry themselves that, you know, debt stress is real stress and, you know, it can lead to a bunch of physical ailments, you know, emotional issues, relationship issues, um, you know, just a ton of things that can really happen to you as a result of of being in debt. Um, So, you know, types of symptoms like if you're constantly worrying about your debts, um, upwards of 70% of folks in our most recent survey, when we asked them, you know, how often do you worry about your debt? Is this something, you know, you can just put away corner of your mind, pick it up once a month and think about it? No, it was the worry is constant all day, every day. I'm worried about my debts. Mm -hmm. So if you're feeling that, that's obviously a big warning sign. Uh, Being scared or anxious about your financial situation. So a lot of people that come into me, the reason why they're so scared and anxious is they know they're in a tough situation, uh, but they really lack two key pieces of knowledge. They lack the knowledge of what can actually happen to them? What can creditors do? Mm-hmm. Can they show up the next day and start carting off their furniture, take their firstborn? You know, some people don't know that that's not possible. Yeah. You know, are they going to be in court next month and thrown in jail? You know, some people have no idea that owing money in Canada is never something that's going to get you thrown in jail, but they're worried about that. So they don't know what creditors can do to them. But the other side of it, they have no idea what they can do to actually deal with the situation. And that's where you guys come in. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So the number of folks that I meet with and, you know, quite often I'm able to explain to them, you know, here's a bankruptcy, here's a proposal, um, here's some extra coaching, here's some counseling on what you can actually do to deal with the situation. You know, quite often they're able to figure out a solution that doesn't include filing for a bankruptcy or a proposal, but does include them feeling a whole lot more confident about what their options are, what the situation is, what they could potentially do to move forward. And I like the idea that you mentioned the counseling part, because I think that's a pretty significant piece of the work that you do, that mm-hmm. that license insolvency trustees that Sands and Associates does when somebody comes in the door, is that debt counseling. And mm-hmm. there's an emotional uh, and a, a, an, a, a mental component to it, as well as a real... Uh, nuts and bolts down on the paper. This is what you need to do in order Mm -hmm. to not get into that situation again. Yeah. And that's just a core part of what we do for every client. So anybody that has to file a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, uh, the government requires they come in for two financial counseling sessions. They sit down with the trustee. They're typically, you know, 30 minutes to an hour in length. Uh, We try to understand what are the background, what's the situation, the warning signs that perhaps you saw or you didn't see that got you to this position. And then the second counseling session is all about the future. You know, what do you do from here? How do you rebuild your credit? How do you avoid being in this situation in the future? And how do you have a really good early warning system, a detector for seeing if these warning signs are happening, you can head them off, get some help early on so that you don't suffer for so long. Sands-trustee.com is just chock-a-bock chock-a-block full of good information, lots of questions, lots of good answers. Uh, Or if you're just ready to get started on that debt-free plan now, uh, book your confidential free debt consultation with a local Sands & Associates professional. Just give them a call toll-free at 1-800-661-3030 or, like I said, visit the website at sands-trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this is a great segment. Uh, It's all about figuring out who to talk to in order to move forward. Who you going to call? Who you call? Who do you call? <laughs> you. Uh-huh. But, but I mean, the thing is, not always, right? There's some mm-hmm. people out there that can give you some assistance, uh, but then there's some people who can't do anything that a licensed insolvency trustee can do. And that's what this is about. Um, so let's talk about the different types of debt help professionals, because we get inundated with ads uh, from all sorts of people telling mm-hmm. us that they can do a lot more I don't want to say that they actually can't do, but they infer that they can and, and mm-hmm. they actually can't. Yeah, it, it's a really murky um, area of, of the of the you know financial system here in that a lot of people, when they find themselves really looking for debt help, they don't know what's out there at all. And they suddenly have to put together, you know, this map of, well, this person can help with this and so on and so forth and what's real and what's reputable and what's just a claim that they can't back up. So today's segment hopefully will give people a good grounding that if they're having a difficulty or someone in their family is having a difficulty, here's the potential avenues they might go down and some, you know, upsides, downsides for each. Okay, good. Let's mm-hmm. start with the lenders. Yeah, so in terms of lenders, so we'll just talk kind of about, you know, about each in general first. So in terms of a lender, if you're having trouble with your debt, you typically go um, to a lender to try to borrow your way out of the situation. That's what got you into it was borrowing some money, so let's try to get out of it. And typically by doing the same thing, and typically that's by the means of a consolidation loan. So the new lender is going to pay off the individual creditors that you owe, and then you'll owe the new lender for the combined balance um, plus the interest charged. So the benefit to you typically is that you're going to pay a little bit less interest and you're going to have some financial simplicity. You're not going to be spending your money, 
you know, 10 or 15 different ways and with different due dates and maybe missing payments here or there just because it's all so complicated. You're going to have one payment each month. You're going to pay off that consolidation loan over time. And ideally, it's going to save you a little bit of money. Okay. Now you included payday loan companies in that in that first one as lenders. Yeah. So you know, there's subprime lenders. There's payday loan companies. So oftentimes people will go to these um, these types of outfits to try to solve a financial problem. But the challenge there is just the cost and the interest being so high. So it's not something just because we're talking about it doesn't mean I endorse it. I don't. Um, but for a small short term situation, if you know you could pay off um, a payday loan or cost and the amount of something that's not extreme, it could still mean you know something that's worth exploring. Okay, but that's the key there, is you've really got to research them. Read every every letter of that fine print, mm-hmm. because we talked about s- some pitfalls last month, and they were scary when there was like, uh, you know, the subbing, the subcontracts Oh yeah, there's brokerage, brokered cash loans where your interest charges are, you know, three times higher than they should be by law, but they split it into a brokerage and a not. So um, yeah, be careful if you're not dealing with one of the major banks, you know, the specialized types of finance houses, typically you're paying a whole lot of costs. Okay. Debt settlement agents. Mm-hmm. Now this was something I saw a whole lot more, maybe three to five years ago, a little less, but if you're Googling online, um, looking for ways to get out of debt, you will still find that this service exists. And what happens with a debt settlement agent is that they negotiate individually with each creditor and they try to achieve a settlement of the amount that you owe for some fraction of the total amount. So typically, if you sit down with a debt settlement agent, they'll say, okay, you owe five people money, stop paying all of them right now and start putting the money that you would have been paying to them into a separate fund where you're going to pay some fees to me as the debt settlement agent and then I'm going to work with these people that you owe money to to try to get them to accept from you, you know, maybe a year or two from now, some reduced amount, you know, maybe 50 cents on the dollar, 70 cents, 30 cents, who knows. Um, but through that whole time, your credit rating is taking a big hit. You're not making any payments to anybody. They might be calling you, harassing you. You've got no protection whatsoever. And then the reason why I don't see debt settlement very much anymore is that oftentimes it wouldn't work at the end of the day. The person would save up for years and years. They pay the fees to the debt settlement agent, the debt settlement agent would go to the creditor or the credit card company and say, hey, here's 30 cents in the dollar tomorrow. What do you guys want? Do you want it? And quite often they would say, no, we don't want it. We want our full payment or we want them to deal with a trustee, for example. Right. So individuals would find themselves worse off because they've been you know, delinquent for three years on their, on their credit now. Um, they've been paying fees to someone who hasn't solved the problem, um, but it is a service that's out there as a debt settlement agent. Got it. And we'll give you the best solution at the end of this, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. So credit counselors, Mm -hmm. we see lots of lovely, I've seen a a bunch of lovely television ads about credit counseling. They're Mm -hmm. thoughtful, kind people sitting down with you, helping you figure it all out. Mm -hmm. Not not always the best solution. Well, they can be all of that. They can be thoughtful and kind and very nice to deal with, but they can also be a collection agency, which is exactly what they are. So whether it's a not-for-profit or a for-profit collection agency um, or credit counselor, I invite anybody listening to just Google the name of the credit counselor and then look to Ontario's uh, Ministry of Consumer Services and you'll find that they're registered as a collection agency. So what a credit counselor can do is give you a lot of, you know, helpful tips and, you know, coaching to help you, you know, have a good budget, 
but at the end of the day, their objective and how they're compensated is they're paid by the creditor to collect 100% of the debt back in a blended monthly payment with no interest. So the benefit is you'll save on the interest, but you won't save it all in the principal. You'll still have to pay back the debts in full, um, and you are dealing directly, essentially, with the creditor, with a collection agent, even though it might seem a little different than that. And see, and that's what the problem that I personally have with them is the seeming part. They, they seem like there's something other than what they are, and I think that's really wrong, and mm-hmm. I think that that really... Um, is just a, a awful thing for the regular consumer to have to deal with or to be aware of. It just shouldn't, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. Yeah, well, if you look on CRA's website, there's a lot of transparency for registered charities. And if you look at some of the large credit counseling agencies and their, um, you know, their revenues, I believe one of them is north of $15 million in revenue, um, their charitable activities last year where they issued a tax receipt. So you think most charities, you, you know, you give them some money to give you a tax receipt, that's most of their revenue, most of their business. It was less than 1%, less than half half of 1% of that total revenue. The rest of it was from the banks, basically paying them a commission for collecting debts on their behalf. Yeah, not good. Mm -hmm. All right, license insolvency trustees. Yeah, so obviously I'm a little bit biased here being a license insolvency trustee myself, uh, but we're the only independent, um, unbiased folks that are there to help you figure out what are your options legally to restructure your debts. So only a trustee can help you with a personal bankruptcy. Only a trustee can help you with a consumer proposal. And a trustee's job is to explain all of these options to you as well as ones that don't include a trustee. So we have to be able to explain to you about consolidating your debt, about going to see a credit counselor, about considering debt settlement. And then if the best option you choose is to deal with a trustee, we can help you with a bankruptcy or with a proposal. And and when you say legally, you're federally registered. Regulated, and I know you Absolutely. say that term all the time, mm-hmm. but it's really important. You're the only one that's under those very specific rules. This is how to do it. And that includes what you would pay yep. Sands and Associates uh, or what their fee would be for you to go through the bankruptcy or the consumer proposal. And it's all dictated by law. Yeah, everything is set by government tariff. Um, every trustee in Canada, it's a free consultation to sit down with the trustee and figure out what your options are. And there's no, um, you know, conflicts of interest. There's no, we're working on behalf of the lenders and not for you. We're independent officers of the court. My job is just to make sure everyone abides by the rules. That includes the individual. They've got to be honest with us and disclose everything, but it includes the government, the banks, everybody else. They've just got to back off when a trustee is involved. They can't do anything against the person once they filed with a trustee. Okay. So do you want to, in closing out this segment, we just have about a minute or so, uh, The oh, talk about the overall fees that you should be aware of or be sure to find out about before you commit to work with any of the debt, debt help professionals? Yeah, I think just given the time constraints, so be aware yeah. that any individual who's not a trustee is typically going to charge you fees on top of whatever arrangement they can work out. Um, so, you know, quite often if it's a debt settlement agent, you'll be paying a fee that can be very significant and that fee gets paid regardless of the whether they solve the problem or they don't solve the problem. When you're dealing with a trustee, everything is set by the government. Uh, If you're doing a consumer proposal, for example, you might be paying $200 a month to deal with about $40,000 of debt, um, and the trustee would be getting a portion of that $200, nothing separate from you. Everything is paid by government tariff. It's really important to remember. And listen, if you've got more questions or you're not too sure about something, go to the Sands & Associates website at sands-trustee.com. It's chock-a-block full of good questions and really thoughtful, easy-to-understand answers. And then you can figure out your next step. And if that's uh, by giving them a call, this is their toll-free number, 1-800-661-3030. Or again, visit the website at sands-trustee.com. 
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I just found this so interesting as I was going through it before sitting down with you, uh, talking about this BC Consumer Debt Study that that Sands & Associates did. Am Mm -hmm. am I right? That's right. Okay, so it's important that you know that you guys created, uh, talked to the people, got the data, and then put it all together. Yeah, it's our seventh year, Elaine. I'm so thrilled to be doing this. I can't believe seven years now we've been doing it where uh, we figured as the largest firm in BC who helps people with bankruptcies or proposals, we had this great opportunity to really take the pulse of people who are having trouble with debt in BC, um, ask them a number of questions, try to get their advice to help others in other situations, uh, and just try to get more of a discussion happening about people suffering in debt and what are their options for moving forward. Um, so this year, it's the seventh time we've done it. Um, I was so pleased in that we had, I believe, North of 1,300 responses to our survey. And if we look at the number of people in a year who file for a bankruptcy or a proposal in all of BC, that's more than 10% of the total. So it's a pretty large number of folks. Um, So it gave us some really good insights about what people who are facing debt in BC, what their life is like right now. Yeah. And I think one of the other best um, sort of offshoots from, from anyone listening to this is that you'll get the sense right away that if you're in one of these situations, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of other people who are in the exact same spot who then took action to figure out how to do it and um, as a result, you know, got to share their information with you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really great. Yeah. And, and, you know, we change the focus every once in a while, you know, every year sometimes a bit of a different focus. So in the past, we've talked about payday loan usage in BC. We've talked about the need for financial literacy, uh, about student finances. You know, this year we focused a lot on, you know, what advice would you give to others? You know, how would you help someone in a tough situation? What would you tell them to do either differently or or to start doing? Um, so if you see the report, it's just, you know, just riddled with great quotes from people all around um, saying, you know, here's what I was facing. Here's what I did. Here's my encouragement for the future. So there's a lot of that upbeat um, type of wording in, in the report as well. Anything else you want to add in terms of the sort of the additional findings that you, that, that came out as a result of the survey? Yeah. You know, we also wanted to, to look into uh, what were the income sources of people who are having trouble with their debt? What's their housing situation? What's their credit rating? Um, and then also what caused people to delay from seeking help? So, you know, our hypothesis is the people suffer alone and in silence for way too long. We want that to change. Um, this year it told us, well, we've still got a lot more work to do on that. Yeah, I think it'll be surprising as we start to go through some of the information, uh, exactly that. Their their income levels, their how they were living, credit, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. You'll go, oh, that's surprising. Yeah. Oh, that's surprising. Because it was for me when I went through it, I thought, oh, that's so interesting. Men versus women. Mm-hmm. Those numbers are really interesting. Age group, also super interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get started. Yeah. So in, in terms of the demographics, so who we actually surveyed this year, so as I said, it was over 1,300 people who mm-hmm. had filed either a bankruptcy or, or a proposal. And then about 63% of that total were proposals. About 34% was a personal bankruptcy. Now so you got to feel good about that. Yeah. That, that's almost exactly what we see coming through our doors. It's pretty close to two-thirds of people. They're not filing for bankruptcy anymore. They're filing for a consumer proposal. And that's a complete reversal from about 10 years ago, where it was about a third proposal, two-thirds bankruptcy. So the word is getting out there a lot more. The proposals are a great option to help people avoid a bankruptcy. Okay. Uh, and then from a gender point of view, this did surprise me. It was about 56% female uh, with the balance male. So I'd always thought it was pretty evenly split, but it seems at least in this past year, it's been more female-driven than male-driven in BC. Any idea why? 
Had you, were you able to sort of make any deductions from that? You know, in some cases, there's a higher incidence of student loans, we've noticed uh-huh. with females. So, sure. um, you know, generally females over 30, much more likely to have student loans than males, at least in our practice. So, okay. um, you know, with student loans, you have to wait seven years until you were last a student, and then you can come and get some debt help. So our hypothesis is it's just a lot more people now coming through with student loans, which tends to skew a little bit more females. So. And the other thing is you may want to look at university populations too, mm-hmm. uh, male versus female. That's right. Or people who identify as each. If there's more uh, women or female Mm -hmm. oriented than male oriented too, that might come up. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, What else? Uh, Uh, How about marital status? Can we talk about that part Yeah, we we looked at marital status. So, you know, the vast, or not vast majority, but the highest proportion of individuals, just under 40%, about 37%, indicated they were married or in a common law relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was closely followed by those who were single, so about 34%. So, you're both married, common law, single, single, uh, pretty significant proportion of folks. Um, and then in terms of those who were divorced, that was about 23% uh, of the population, uh, widowed about 4%, uh, and the balance, you know, just other living arrangements. But sure. for, the ma- for the most part, you know, they're single or, or living in a committed relationship. So what about the actual age range of the participants? Did that surprise you at all? You know, a little bit. So the biggest thing that we noticed in this year, um, and definitely compared to previous surveys, was just the aging of debt. So finding that people are older when they come to see us. So in our 2012 study, we looked well, what's the percentage of people who are age 55 or older when they sit down with a trustee? At that point, it was about 26%, so just over one in four. Our 2016 study, it went from 26 to 36%, so now it's closer to one in three. In this study, it went to 39%. So, you know, just under 40% of individuals coming to see us age 55 or older. So a lot of those individuals, they don't have the ability to increase their income at the end of their working life. They get what the pension is and that's that. Sometimes they can't go out and get a second job. So it can be a really tough situation if you're dealing with debt at the end of your working life or well into retirement. And we're seeing that more and more. Okay. Um, do you want to talk about income and housing being highlighted in the study and what you what you found out of that? Yeah. Yeah, so this was really interesting to us. So, you know, a lot of times people say, well, a lot of this overextension, you know, bankruptcies and things, it must be caused by people just buying way too much house and not being able to afford the mortgage and, you know, getting turfed out and then having to go bankrupt after. I don't think I've ever seen that actually as a trustee in BC. I have almost nobody coming to see me because of mortgage overextension. And from our survey point of view, just 4.4% of respondents were homeowners at the time that they sought debt help. So the vast majority of individuals, 79% were renting and then another 5% were sharing a rental unit. So, you know, that's about 85% of individuals are subject to the vagaries of the rental market within the lower mainland, which can be incredibly difficult. Um, You know, if you've got a place that's at a good deal, you don't want to leave that because trying to get um, new living uh, spots right now, especially if you're a family, can be incredibly difficult to do so. So it's not a case that, you know, people are coming to see us because they're overextended on their mortgage. Um, It's quite the case that these are folks that unfortunately haven't been able to acquire any real estate um, and now they're stuck with, you know, rents going up every year and their income just can't keep pace. Right, exactly, exactly that. That's what I would think that that would be, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, what we do think is that, you know, as of now, it's 4% of respondents own a house. I mean, that's going to go up in the future because I've seen this again and again. Um, Individuals who own real estate, you know, they might get into debt problems, but then 
every three, four, five years, they refinance their mortgage and they just pay off all their debts at that point. Mm-hmm. So instead of paying down the mortgage, they end up owing more on the house, but at least it's not on credit cards anymore. Right. And then they've got the credit cards and those can go up again in the next few years. But what it means is when these individuals eventually sell the house, all the home equity lines of credit, all the mortgages need to get paid off. So they might be thinking they're going to have a bunch of equity at the end of the day, but if that's all been kind of sucked out over time just for consumption, it can be a really tough situation. So just having a home doesn't mean that you're going to be financially secure in Vancouver. Right. And with the fluctuating real estate market, as much as it has been, we've seen it, you know, huge highs Mm -hmm. and lows and then highs again and then changes in the tax structure or, um, you know, uh, penalties for people, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. That changes people's how they're able to buy and what they're able to buy as Mm -hmm. well. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right. You know, one other point there, Elaine, you asked me yes. about employment and you know, yes. this this was very surprising as well. I think for um, individuals, if you just you know, think of bankruptcy at a headline level, you know, it's people completely down and out, down on their luck, you know, skid row type of thing. Mm-hmm. That's not what we found at all. No. So what we found um, is that more than 70% of the total survey respondents were working full-time, working part-time or being self-employed. So this isn't a question of hard work. You know, hard work alone is not enough to get you out of debt. It's a case of people working really hard, 70% full-time, part-time self-employment, but they still had to file either a bankruptcy or a proposal because the debt was just too high for even hard work to get them out of. Excellent. All right, next piece of it then. The primary income source at the time that people came to you for help. Right. So we talked about that with the reg- the employment income, um, self-employment income. You know, about 15% was actually retirement pension income. So that was their primary source of income. But for the most part, it was the self-employment, um, full-time, part-time work. Okay. Now, in terms of the amount of debt, so, you know, what caused people to finally reach out and say that they needed help, you know, that range was a little bit higher than it would have thought. So the most common uh, range when people started to reach out for help was $25,000 to $50,000 worth of debt. And that's outside of your vehicle loan or your mortgage. So I would think for anybody listening, thinking about $25,000 of carrying credit card debt, and that's pretty significant, but the vast majority of folks that we surveyed, the most common um, answer was, yeah, I waited until it got to about twenty-five to 50000 before I reached out for help. Wow. And, and uh, I don't know anything about anything, but I would suggest that that's, that's a little too long. Yeah. And that's, that's the big challenge. And that's what a lot of the wisdom that came from other clients was saying, you know, I waited too long. You know, waited I, too long. I flailed about, I, you know, I just... You know, put my head in the sand. I didn't deal with the situation and the debts just accumulated. Um, you know, we found about 11.7% of people, their debts were $100,000 or more by the time wow. they came to see us. And again, it's not mortgages, not car loans. So imagine your credit cards, your lines of credit, your student loans, you know, topping $100,000. Um, you know, even those from fifty to 100000 that was another 25% of individuals. So It's really high. Yeah. So it's it's definitely, I think people let their debts accumulate to a level where there's just really nothing else they can do than come see a trustee. Whereas if they had acted a little bit more quickly, they wouldn't have been so stressed. And perhaps, you know, they would have done a proposal instead of a bankruptcy in some of those situations. Now, is that the big, is that the big takeaway for you after looking at those numbers that people needed to take action sooner. Mm -hmm. And what about having money put aside? And I know that that's really hard for some people to even think about sort of that emergency fund, but Mm -hmm. I would have... I would think that that would have been helpful as well. You're absolutely right, Elaine, on that emergency fund, because as we dug into the causes of debt, you know, what really caused people to have to file either bankruptcy or proposal, you know, it was kind of the classic causes that you think about. Um, you know, it's job related, there's unemployment, a layoff, a reduction in pay, there's an illness, injury, or health problem, 
there's a marital breakdown or so on and so forth. You know, the combination of those was over 40% of the survey respondents. And to your point, Elaine, if you had an emergency fund, a lot of those things, that's why you have an emergency fund. You have an emergency fund that if you're sick, you're going to be able to pay your fixed account fixed expenses. If you're getting divorced, you've got something to get you through. So the challenge, I think, is that we've got people operating with no safety net whatsoever. No savings, no emergency fund. You know, the emergency fund is the credit card at the end of the month, which is not an emergency fund. You need to have money saved that you can put aside to help you get through the tough situations that you don't have to necessarily reach out to a trustee right then. So is there some sort of, as we close out this segment, is there something that you can do easily or very definitively to create an emergency fund for yourself? Because I know that that's real pie in the sky for some Mm -hmm. people. They can't even wrap their head around that idea of having money put aside. Yeah, there's nothing easy about saving money, um, you know, other than you've just got to do it daily. So, you know, if you were to reverse engineer, you need three to six months of expenses. You want to have that in two years time. What does that work out to literally on a daily basis? And then just start to save that money, put it aside into a separate account. The other thing I want to add is that you can see the whole uh, consumer debt study on the website, SANS dash trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So, all about interest. And I think this is an important piece for people to think about. I know it was for me. It was a big revelation when I realized, oh, man, that interest is high or that interest is really low. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talk about, or financial people talk about interest all the time. Uh, big banks talk about it. Uh, of course, one in particular just announced that they're going to begin charging compounded interest on its personal credit card products. Mm-hmm. Holy Toledo. That was interesting, yeah. Yeah. Man, compound interest. If you thought interest was confusing or um, sort of baffling sometimes, at least I always did, wait till we get into compound interest. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Anyways, it's all back in the the headlines again about compound interest. And and Blair is great. We're going to talk about what you need to know about interest rates and debts, including how and when their changes can impact you, the average person. So to start this thing off, this segment off, can you talk a little bit about the the credit card interest change that uh, a big bank recently uh, announced and can you talk about which big bank that is? Yeah, well, it was TD, so okay. we don't need. They were very public about it, and uh, you know, other banks may cover, may follow suit or not. Right. Um, but this fell into the the realm of my God, really? <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was just quite surprised. Okay, you know, nineteen to twenty nine percent interest rate isn't enough. You want to change how the math actually works? Well, on that's that? the thing. Our yeah. Canadian banks do really well, and that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why they do really well. Oh yeah, their credit card portfolios they c- contribute a disproportionate amount of profits to the banks. That's for sure. Yeah. So the difference is that, you know, with a lot of credit cards and TD before this change, um, your interest was calculated once a month on your average daily balance, okay? Now, what TD has done is they've said, we're not going to look at your average daily balance. Literally, every day there's a balance in that card, we're going to charge you interest. And once we charge interest on one day, the next following day when we charge interest on that amount, we're going to charge interest on the interest we just charged you the day before. Right, so So the interest plus the total. Interest on interest. Right. Where normally once a month they'd add it on, no, it's every single day 
day, it's compounded daily interest. Now, for the average person, it's not a night and day difference. It's not going to make your card, you know, two or three times more expensive, but it is going to make the bank a little bit more money on those folks that do carry a balance, which most people don't. But for those that do, um, you could expect your interest charges to go up marginally um, because of this change by TD. And we'll again see if other banks, um, you know, work that way as well. I think they were hoping that this is just going to go and people aren't going to look closely at how it's calculated and, you know, it's going to come and go and it's going to be a little bit more to pad the bank's bottom line. Right. So what's the what's the most common type of debt that somebody should consider when it comes to interest rates? Well, quite often the most common type of debt that we see, and this is all of our studies bear this out, is credit card debt. Um, and the thing with credit card debt is, you know, you hear about the bank's prime rate and things like that. And, you know, a mortgage might be a couple points above prime and it tends to float and things like that. Uh, with credit card debt, it's so far divorced from the prime rate of interest in this country um, that, you know, you're looking at typically, um, you know, 19, as I said, 19 to 29% interest rates. And you need to be aware of how significantly those interest rates can work against you um, depending on the type of card that you have. So a couple examples for today's segment, Elaine, I just wanted to talk about if you had a $5,000 debt and how differently that's going to to react depending on the interest rate of the type of card that you have it on. So if you had a $5,000 debt and you had a low rate credit card, so you did the right thing, you went to your bank, you had a good credit history, you said, you know what, I need all the bells and whistles, I want the card with the lowest interest rate possible, and you got a card for 11.9 interest rate, which is pretty reasonable. And is that the lowest one that's out there for the regular Joe? Uh, That's pretty competitive. I've seen sometimes high single digits, but that can come and go. So typically, you know, in the low um, double digits is pretty reasonable. Okay. So, and I just want to add this more of a personal question. So what do you have to do to get that low interest rate credit card? You phone them up. And just ask. Yeah. Typically, this isn't going to be the card that they advertise. They're not going to phone you up and say, hey, we can reduce your interest charges typically. But if you call them and say, hey, I'm looking at low rate credit card offers and do your homework first, you know, look online. There's a bunch of competitive sites that are out there um, and just see what are the low rate offers. And if your bank doesn't have one, say, well, you know, I'm looking at the bank X next door and they've got a great offer. You guys must be able to do something to compete with that. And without a lot of uh, bells and whistles, it's probably not going to, uh, going to, uh, you're not going to be able to collect points that's the big thing, all the that points. kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the points, that's a whole other segment because if we were to figure sure. out, you know, the actual value of those points, you know, usually it's about 1% of your spend. Uh, if you carry a balance even for just one month, you've usually eclipsed all the value of the points plus more. I was so, going to say you were going to crush my dreams oh. at this point. Yeah. <laughs> no, if you pay it off every month, points can be great. Um, okay. you know, I've collected airplane miles for years, um, but you got to pay the card off every month and avoid the interest charges. Okay. So that $5,000, we were saying if you got 11.9% interest rate, it is is going to take you just under 15 years. So 14 years and seven months to become debt-free uh, based on a $5,000 debt, making just the minimum payments. And you pay about $2,400 of interest. Wow. Okay? And that's your best case scenario. So, yeah, that's so a lot. Let's give a more common scenario. This one's at 18.9% um, interest. So the same 5,000 uh, from 14 years, it went to just under 20 years. So 19 years and nine months to become debt-free. And now you've paid $5,300 in interest more than you originally owed. Okay. okay. But Boy. it gets even worse. If you've got a store credit card, so any of the big retailers, they've got their own credit cards. They're typically 29.9 interest rates. That $5,000 debt, Elaine, I almost couldn't believe it when we calculated this. 50 years and four months to become debt-free. And you would have paid an interest, not the 5000 that you borrowed, not even two times that. You'd pay almost five times the amount that you borrowed in interest. You'd pay $23,262 in interest. So be aware the interest rate on your credit card can significantly change the amount of time you're going to be in debt, the amount that you have to pay, even just your hopes of ever getting out of debt. And where it comes from. 
mm-hmm. and where it's that where who your credit card is with. Yeah. What's another kind of uh, debt type that might not be directly impacted by an interest rate increase? Yeah, vehicle loans are the other big one. So they're set. Yeah, they're typically fixed, a fixed rate um, over the period of time that you're financing the car. It doesn't change if the interest rates go up or down. Um, sometimes there can be a variable component where they'll you know add a couple payments to the end if interest rates change, but that's very rare. So for the most part, okay. it's a fixed type of a, of a contract. Now, the, the warning signs that I see with vehicle financing um, is, you know, first off, it's an emotional purchase. And sometimes people get really wrapped up at the dealership. They end up buying way more car or truck than they ever needed. Yes. And they're stuck with a payment that can be difficult to afford. So obviously be very careful with that. Um, but the other thing is to be very careful about negative equity. So this means if you're trading in your car before it's paid off, you owe more than what your car is worth. And you just say, you know, we'll add that to my new financing. Okay. And then you do that another time and so on and so forth. I've had people come to me owing literally 60 to 80 thousand dollars on twenty thousand dollar vehicles because they just continually didn't want to keep the car for the full term they owed a bunch of money on it and they said well just add that to the new financing on the car so be very careful about rolling in negative equity if you've got a car that you don't want to continue to make the payments on we've talked about that in past um, segments about you know your options there if you stop making the payments typically the car will get seized and that will extinguish the debt so be aware of all of your options before you consolidate some negative equity when you're financing a vehicle Okay, so and this this may be the last thing that we talk about in this segment. What are the types of debts uh, where you will be impacted by an interest rate change, mm-hmm. even though you don't start with that, but you end up with a different tra- uh, different rate? Yeah, the biggest ones are lines of credit and mortgages, um, and obviously mortgages very near and dear to us in the Lower Mainland because every every situation or conversation often comes back to housing here. Um, on a variable rate mortgage, if interest rates go up, your payments will go up, so you'll see an impact often by even the next month. Um, and rates have been so low for so long, and they're still relatively low, but you got to realize a 2% mortgage, if rates go up by 1%, well, then you've just increased your interest cost by 50% because you're now paying 3% instead of 2 So be aware that even a small change in interest rates and a variable rate mortgage can have a significant impact. What about a fixed rate mortgage? How do you come out with that? Well, fixed rate is typically you've got some certainty that it's not going to change based on the, the rates going up or down, but at renewal time, that's when you might have that's a situation. Where it's going to be a lot more expensive. So, you know, obviously, if you're in the year prior to your renewal, you might be looking at, well, do I break earlier now and and try to lock in if you think rates are going to go up or down? There's a bunch of speculating you can do. Uh, But for the most part, uh, if you've stayed variable in the past, it has borne out that that's been the right decision. But, you know, who knows in the future how things would go. Okay. So, can we skip to the the questions? So, what can you do to counteract the costs of an interest rate increase? Because that seems like the most timely thing to do. Yeah. Well, you can't do anything to control interest rates. You know, those decisions are made far above your or my pay grade here. So there's nothing right. we can do to impact the interest rates. But what we can do is not panic. So we know interest rates, they rise and fall with the business cycle. Uh, we know if rates go up, they're not going to be high forever. And if they're low, they're not going to be low forever. Um, the people who are most at risk if interest rates go up are those that are overextended on their debts. So those that you know borrow too much, haven't been able to pay it down. So the key thing to do is just to focus on paying as much of your debt down as possible while rates are still low and try to insulate yourself that if rates go up, um, you'll still be able to make payments. Mm-hmm. Uh, book that free that confidential free consultation. Uh, it's nice and easy to do. 1-800-661-3030 or visit their website at sands-trustee.com. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.